I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me. Anna Nicole Smith has died. Modeling, movies, her own TV show. The world is infatuated with Anna Nicole Smith. A death that opened a Pandora's box of questions. Today, we're talking to executive producer and director Ursula McFarlane. Born in a small Texas town, Vicki Lynn Hogan would go on to fame as the model and actress known as Anna Nicole Smith. From her first appearance in Playboy in 1992, her puzzling marriage to an elderly billionaire, and her popular reality show, Anna Nicole's dizzying ascent was the very essence of the American dream, brought to a tragic halt with her untimely passing in 2001. With access to never-before-seen footage, home movies, and interviews with key figures who have not spoken until now, Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me, reveals new insights into the story of the quintessential blonde bombshell hardly anyone really knew. I would just advise people just to follow their dreams. They can't come true. I'm living proof. And I'm joined now by executive producer and director, Ursula McFarlane. Welcome, Ursula. Hi, Rebecca. It's so nice to be here. Thank you so much for chatting with us about Anna Nicole Smith. So the film is titled Anna Nicole Smith, You Don't Know Me. And this is a big question. So I'd love for you to give me your elevator-sized answer. What is the primary thing that you think people get wrong about Anna Nicole Smith? I think she's a much criticized, celebrated, maligned person that no one really knew. And I think people sort of see her as a kind of cartoon character, the blonde bombshell playboy model who married the billionaire. That's it in a nutshell, really. That's what people think. And, you know, we have dug deep and found out that she was so much more than that. And I think we want to show people that she's this incredibly multidimensional, nuanced, complicated, flawed human being. And I think she's never been presented as a human being. And that's what we've tried to do here. You start with a clip of Brian Williams leading into the news story of Anna Nicole's death. This may say a lot about our current culture of celebrity and media these days when all the major cable news networks switched over to nonstop live coverage this afternoon when word arrived that Anna Nicole Smith had died. She was 39 years old. He sounds so dismissive as if the only thing notable about her death is that it received so much media coverage. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to start the documentary there? We chose to start the documentary there because I think in a way it epitomized the way she was treated by the media. You know, she was treated as a story rather than a human being. And as he says, you know, the coverage when she died kind of knocked everything off everything else off the, the media agenda. Uh, so, you know, in death as in life, she was being picked over, um, elevated, trashed uh, by, by the tabloid media. And in fact, by all media, you know, CNN, everybody was covering her 24-hour uh, coverage. We felt that that sort of, 
you know, that encapsulated the way that her life and now her death was being seen. And I'm wondering if this is why, you know, what was it about Anna Nicole Smith that made you think she would be a great documentary subject? Well, I mean, I've made some films about complicated women and she's definitely a complicated person. You know, she's not perfect. She's just like all of us. But there is a sort of larger than life aspect to her, which is fascinating. You know, this iconic character. And I think when you've got a character that you can really start to dig into and really uncover all the subtleties and complexity of her personality, then you're going to get something really rich and detailed and hopefully, you know, satisfying for the audience to feel they've really got to know this person. Your film is so intimate. And at so many points, you know, I really became engrossed in it. And uh, so much so that I forgot that I was watching things that were like really technically interesting. And one of the things that I found myself wondering afterwards is where you got some of this archival footage. There are so many interesting behind the scenes moments before Anna Nicole breaks out as a huge star or while she's breaking out as a huge star. There's a very notable scene where she's on the phone um, talking about being offered the role that Cameron Diaz ultimately played in The Mask. There's two major movies that want me at one, and they're both shooting at the same time. Um, one's called The Mask, by Chuck Russell, and one is Naked Gun 3. Um, the mass movie I've had for about four months. I really haven't read the script until last week. So um, it's got Jim Carrey in it, that funny guy. Where did that footage come from? What was being made that was being filmed at that point? Oh, I'm glad you picked up. I, I love that particular scene. I just think you see everything. You see the naivety, you see the you know, the, the desire to be successful. Um, so there's a, there's a participant in the film called Ashley. Um, she's the lady whose house in Malibu Anna sort of went to stay in. And, and Ashley was actually making a documentary about people trying to make it in Hollywood. And apparently Anna said to her, hey, you can film me. So she said, great, you know, let's film you. And they spent a day filming with her in Malibu and all of that wonderful footage She's watching our senior hall. She's kind of hanging out on the beach. She's on the phone to her agent. She's in that beautiful um, car with the red dress on. That's all from Ashley's wonderful footage. And Ashley actually had that in her garage and hadn't looked at it for years and years and years. The film was never broadcast. That's incredible. Um, we, we got to know her and my wonderful producer, Alex, um, spent hours with her looking through the material and she agreed to give it to us. I think she wanted... She'd always wanted it to be part of something that was authentic and sensitive. And so she gave us permission to use it. And then in terms of other unseen footage uh, and, and, and stills, there's a lot from Missy, her personal collection. Um, there are phone calls between Anna Nicole and her husband, J. Howard Marshall, which also I think most of which have never been never been heard before. So we were so glad that we were able to get this because we felt we could insert Anna's own voice into the film and get such intimacy from it by actually hearing what Anna was saying, what Anna was doing herself outside of the media glare. You know, there's so much footage of her on red carpets and all that kind of stuff. But this, we were so happy to get this because it felt like we were really seeing the real Anna. So Anna was reluctant to talk about her childhood other than that it was in a small Texas town. Um, what were you able to piece together about this time in her life? 
Well, the narrative was the rags to riches story. And, and right at the beginning of the film, she's doing a Playboy video saying, this is the town that I grew up in and gives you a tour around the tiny, dusty town of Mahia, Texas. As we discovered later on through her, her very good friend, Missy, that wasn't the whole story. She didn't grow up dirt poor. There was a time in her life where she moved to Mahia because her mom was worried about her sort of going out with older men. But actually, she grew up in a, in a fairly decent home in, in Houston, on the outskirts of Houston. Her mum was in law enforcement. So we, what we discovered is that it's true, yes, she was in that small town for, you know, two or three years of her life. But the rest of the time, she had a pretty sort of safe childhood. And what we had discovered is that she kept that sort of rags to rich poor girl lifted up from the dust narrative because it served her well in her creation of this, you know, appealing woman, because the rags to riches story always goes down really well. And during that, it turned out that she had sort of really trashed her mom and complained about her mom. And what we discovered towards the end is that actually she and her mom were on really good terms. She was in contact with her throughout her life. They weren't estranged, in fact. And her mom knew that she was sort of spinning this tale and that was something we found out sort of towards the end of the filmmaking process. And we felt we really wanted to include that in our film because the authentic, you know, it's the true story. And I think going back to what I was saying earlier shows a different side of Anna Nicole Smith, perhaps that people didn't know that she was canny and clever at shaping her own narrative for good or bad. That for me felt like a really strong part of her story that we shouldn't shy away from telling. No, I thought it was extraordinary because, you know, it was a, a big twist at the end. But also, you know, there is this part of her life that does get very difficult in her young life when she marries uh, this abusive guy. And it's a very difficult period in her life. And it's almost like she realizes in that moment that this sort of Phoenix from the Ashes thing is really the key to people uh wanting to help her to her like being able to be seen as you know a shining star you sort of have to come from somewhere but she does begin that journey you know as an exotic dancer and that is where she befriends this woman Missy who you have so many wonderful conversations with in your film uh, who really is there for like the origin story of Anna Nicole Smith I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about interviewing Missy and and, the, and those interactions with her. Well, you're so right. I think, and just one thing I do want to say about her becoming a dancer, that actually, yes, she did want to get out of small town, whether it was Houston suburbs or, or Mahaya small town. And most of all, actually, I think she wanted to, I, I'm just, I know we want to talk about Missy, but she wanted to create a better life for her son, mm. her little boy. And I think that's a really important thing to know about Anna Nicole Smith. But anyway, yes, Missy. So Missy, we always knew of her existence. Uh, she was impossible to find. Um, but eventually, um, Alex, our producer, you know, tracked her down. And we went down to where she lives. And we spent a wonderful time with her, during which she told us this, this big twist to the story that we hadn't previously known about. Um, and, you know, she, she wasn't looking for, Missy's not looking for fame or fortune or didn't want to be exposed to the public eye. But I think she always felt that Anna's true story hadn't really been told. And she knew her so well. She knew her during an absolutely pivotal time of her life. She agreed to take part, and we are so glad she did. But no one needed to give her any pointers on how to attract a man. She knew what she was doing. 
And she doesn't need a lot of help manipulating anybody. She's actually better at it than me. Within a week or two, she was like a pro. And she's such a straight shooter, straight talker, fabulously warm person who I think from the detail of her story, you can tell really, really knew Anna Nicole. So interviewing her just felt so authentic and wonderful, actually. And we just, we just, it, you know, what a joy for the film, what a gift for the film that she was able to be in it. I thought so, too. She painted such a rich portrait of Anna and Nicole and also their relationship and didn't, it wasn't one of those stories where it was like any resentment for not like bringing me along for the ride. Like she made the choice, obviously, to sort of get off the train at some point and didn't seem to have a lot of negative feelings about Anna still, like still really seems to have a lot of great deal of love and affection, even though it was a difficult part of, you know, difficult part of her journey too, in some ways. It was really, I think, a beautiful bit of storytelling. I just wanted to acknowledge that for you because it is something about Anna Nicole we didn't know. Thank you. There was a bit of cruel symbolism um, in the in the documentary that I think is something that I didn't realize, even though, you know, I was very much aware of Anna Nicole Smith's celebrity and, and the trials and travails, is that it was her implant operation that got her started on painkillers. That was something I didn't realize. I didn't know that either. And that was Missy who told us that story. And if you think about it, it totally makes sense. And then later in the film, uh, her, her pain consultant, her pain doctor, Dr. Sandeep Kapoor, explains to us that, you know, it was the breast implants, uh, infections, and I think implosions, many more operations. You know, she was someone who suffered from a lot of pain. She had pain conditions all of her life, which again, I don't think anybody really knew about. So whilst people thought, you're a drug addict. Actually, you know, yes, she clearly took too many drugs, particularly by the end. But actually, she was trying to manage and cope with extreme pain through most of her life. And I think one of the things that Dr. Kapoor tells us is she was on methadone mm -hmm. for pain treatment, not because she was a heroin addict. And I think that's another part of the story that's got twisted. And as he makes clear, you know, methadone is a very uh, well-used, acceptable drug for pain relief. But at the end, it was used against him and various other people that, you know, she'd been drugged because she was a heroin junkie. And there was no methadone found in her blood sister, her, her bloodstream when she died. So, you know, I think it was quite important to sort of put aside that idea of junkie and try and understand that, yes, she was hooked on pills, but it came from a place of of real pain and continued pain throughout her life. That's right. And I think if it had happened a few years later, it would be very much understood as part of what was happening uh, with the beginning of the opioid crisis, which is something that was happening in the country at the time, just hadn't had a name yet, right? And people with money, celebrities had access to pain management in a way that the rest of America did not at that point in the culture, um, which is just a very interesting, you know, aspect of the story too. Um, I do want to get back to that part of the story in a minute, but now I I really do want to talk about Anna's uh, rise to fame through Playboy. I was astonished to see this interview with this woman, Marilyn. It sounds like, and it's very hard for me to believe that, you know, she was the only one who seemed to think that Anna Nicole Smith was Playboy material, this unbelievably transcendently gorgeous human being. Frizzed up hair, a lot of lipstick, a lot of eyeshadow, and ample, to put it mildly. Then I said, whew, what am I going to do with this? I, I mean, it's very, it's funny, isn't it? But I mean, as, as Marilyn says in the film, her whole thing was to kind of create the, the girl next door look, 
you know, the natural girl look. And that was what they, Playboy, she was all about at that time. And then she gets sent these photographs. And yes, you could see that this girl's face is extraordinary. But, you know, the big hair, the sort of 80s, blue eyeshadow, the lip gloss, it was kind of masking the beauty. But clearly Marilyn could see beyond that, you know, and then she says this girl comes in and she's just got no makeup on and she's got the most beautiful face. And I guess that's when she realised she was something, you know, to be that beautiful without makeup. Marilyn, I think, realised that there was something really special going on here. Anna seems to have this affinity for Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily super unusual for young, blonde, beautiful starlets in that era. But her affinity seems singular to me in a, in a way. I, I can't quite describe why that it's particularly poignant. And, you know, when especially when Marilyn tells that story of her really loosening up to Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend and just seeing her react to that poster on the wall. Do you have any sense of uh, when that began for her or why? So we know at some point, I think in her 20s, she started to watch Marilyn Monroe films. And I think Anna was a big romantic. I think, you know, really she wanted to be a movie star. And that whole kind of, she had big dreams, you know. She, I think that whole that was very, very alluring to her. And obviously when she did the guest campaign, they kind of did her as a sort of 50s starlet. And I think she really embraced that look. And of course, she was beautiful, like Marilyn Monroe, and she kind of could put on that wispy voice. She loved to sing along to the Marilyn songs, as we see at the end of the film. And I think she felt that Marilyn's life was kind of similar, you know, that there was pain there. There was a difficult childhood, which was the story she was telling. And I think she saw many parallels between her and Marilyn's life. But I guess most of all, it was probably that look, you know, a young girl, I mean, a blonde young girl, you know, who's absolutely drop dead gorgeous. Why wouldn't you want to kind of look like Marilyn and, you know, have that dream, that seemingly dream career and that dream life and have everybody fall in love with you? You know, I mean, her uncle says at the beginning of the film, she craved, she wanted attention. You know, she wanted it right from the start. It wasn't just thrown at her and she sort of reluctantly accepted it. Yeah. She wanted it. Uh, and at one point, you know, she also craves love and this familial love in this way that is also, to me, extremely poignant and in, in many ways very sad. I mean, she she reunites with her half-brother, Donnie, and uh, her birth father. She surprises them by flying them to L.A., picks them up in this limo in this big show, and reveals that, you know, she, Vicky is now playmate of the year, Anna Nicole Smith. And she goes, do you know who I am? you never seen me before? I believe uh, Missy uh, was in there, too. And uh, she was like going, you, you don't recognize her, you don't? And she might be hanging on your wall. It's in many ways a very sad attempt at finding familial love, right? I I completely agree. And I think, you know, Donnie, her half-brother says, well, he says she wasn't getting along with her mom, which we know is, you know, complex story. But what he says is, you know, everybody needs someone to look up to. Everybody needs a father figure in their lives. And Missy says the same thing. You know, she was so happy when she finally found her father. She hadn't known her father at all. He disappeared when she was very, very tiny. I think it was really important to her. And obviously, 
you know, then when we discover that, that that all turned really wrong when he assaulted her is, I think, a devastating moment. And I know Missy was, as you can see on camera, you know, she's incredibly upset for her friend that it all went horribly wrong. But I, I do, I think she was, she craved that. She craved belonging. Um, personally, I think she found a little bit of that in Ashley's house in Malibu. She used to go there and escape and have people who loved her unconditionally, not for the glamour girl that she was. Yeah, I think she was searching for it. I think she was probably searching for it all her life. Yeah, Donnie is really wonderful because he honestly is, yeah. is just very, very clear-eyed, very honest. He's a gorgeous shot of him riding the horse, by the way, which is like really extraordinary. I, I just keep thinking about all these threads with her and, you know, seeking this familial, familial love and comfort. And obviously, one of the most unusual turns in her life is her relationship with this elderly oil tycoon, billionaire J. Howard Marshall, which actually began much earlier in her life than I think most people understand that it did. The optics of that relationship certainly don't play well for Anna when she becomes well-known, or didn't, during her life especially. How would you describe what you came to understand about their real relationship? I believe, having spoken to various people, um, and Missy, I truly believe that they're in love with each other. I really do. You know, Anna's lawyer, Callie Moore, says so. She spent quite a lot of time with them together. You know, he wanted to adopt Daniel. He wanted to make sure that Daniel and Anna were going to be completely taken care of for the rest of their lives. I don't know how much verbally he promised her, but I think he truly loved her. And I think she loved him. And she says in court, you know, it wasn't a kind of baby, I love your body kind of love. It was, it was a very deep love. Having said that, I think there's no doubt that she started to abuse his generosity. And Missy tells us that story. And, you know, that's Anna being a human being again, maybe not particularly likable at that point, but, but I, I think there was genuine love there. And, and I think Kelly says, you know, they, they got each other. They were both extraordinary people and everybody was trying to get a piece of both of them. Everybody wanted his money. Everybody wanted her glamour, stardust, whatever. They they understood each other. And I think you can see that from the photographs of them together. She looks to me, when I see those photographs, she looks almost like a young girl, no makeup, relaxed. He looks beyond happy. And why not? You know, there is so much prejudice around love affairs where there are huge gaps um, in age. And I just think tabloids particularly have been very judgmental about that relationship. And I genuinely was surprised to hear that it seemed like a real love story, at least certainly for a long time. Right, you know? right. Well, love can look like a lot of different things and obviously gave, gave him a great deal of pleasure to take care of her. And that can be a love in, of its own. Like, who are we to judge, you know, what somebody's love <laughs> should look like, honestly? Um, yeah. After Marshall dies, you know, his son Pierce challenges Anna's inheritance of his fortune and he wins. And we heard from Pierce's lawyer, Rusty Hardin. And by the way, as an aside, as a viewer, I'm always surprised that lawyers agree to do these interviews because of the things that they, they then say. Um, he sums up his case like this. She didn't lose because she was a gold digger. She, she lost because of who she was. I was so offended on her behalf when he said that, even though I remember watching this testimony on the news at the time, it was just so difficult to hear him talk about her this way, especially given what we know about what happened to her. 
I mean, it's, it's very difficult. I think, you know, obviously Rusty was representing Pierce, you know, that's, that was his job. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't think Rusty sort of felt and, you know, any kind of dislike of Anna. I think he was, you know, doing his job as a lawyer, but I think in a way you're right. I think saying that again, it kind of epitomizes the general view about her that she, you know, that she was a glutton, that she just wanted too much. Uh, she had an appetite for everything. And I think he says, you know, whether it was sex or money or food, I would have to remember the exact words, but, you know, he implies that she just wants it all and wants too much of it. And I think perhaps that also taps into uh, her gaining weight and people seeing her as a glutton rather than someone who has an eating disorder, you know, as Bonnie says later on in the film. You know, what he says is is kind of, you know, reflects what the world thought about her at that time. It was interesting to me that among the people who had an up-close perspective on her were some of the paparazzi. And you include um, you know, two members of the paparazzi in the documentary. And, and that's usually a very transactional and sort of cold interaction. But her relationship with them is described as fairly unusual, you know, her sort of coming to life for them. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because it's different than I've seen paparazzi portrayed in almost any other documentary where I've seen them interviewed. Right. Okay. No, that's interesting. Yes. I mean, both Kevin and JD, we felt there was, you know, it's quite easy to portray tabloid uh, journalists as sort of monstrous, you know, immoral, amoral people. Like everything else, it's really complicated. And, and like everything in her life, it was complicated for her, you know, as much as the media was her enemy, she also embraced the media. I mean, you see all that amazing paparazzi footage of her loving the camera. And as JD says, coming alive for the camera. And it worked both ways because they made a lot of money out of her. And later on, as I think we say, you know, she was, it was a two-way thing. You know, there was money going both ways and she was very much in control of what was going on. She wasn't just a victim. And I just think that goes back to sort of how complex she is. You know, it's never quite what it seems with Anna. And I think she's, you know, she's, she, she is kind of, you know, sort of taking care of business herself as much as being exploited. Yeah. Um, and I, th- you know, and I, I just find that really interesting. Well, that's kind of what the reality show um, kind of brings to bear. It's just such a strange moment because, you know, she runs this idea past her friend who says, you know, they're just going to make fun of you. And the way she tells the story, Anna seemed to understand that. And the question is, you know, do you think Anna was in on the joke or not? Because ultimately, the reality show is a lot of what leads to the public dialogue about her, you know, so-called gluttony and about her weight gain and about, you know, it kind of ends up feeding something that maybe she's trying to dispel. It's very hard to kind of tell what's going on there. Um, I'm just, I'm so angry at the reality show producers in many ways, but at the same time, it also got her in front of the cameras, which is also what she wanted to be, right? I think, yeah, absolutely. She'd had a really bad time. There'd been, you know, the court case, the, you know, the the slamming of her in the press because of um, the inheritance, you know, the fight over the inheritance. I think she loved being in front of the camera, you know, as we've just been saying. She loved that. She needed to make money, to be honest with you. I think, you know, it was possibly as simple as that. But she, by this point in her life, she did love being in front of the camera. And I think we watch it now and you know, I watch it sort of cringing because I feel, yes, you know, it's actually what Ashley says. They're going to make money out of you and people are going to be laughing at you. 
So to your question, whether she was in on the joke, I would say yes and no. Mm. You know, I think she was playing up to it. Perhaps, I mean, I I can't answer that question because obviously I don't know what was in her head and I'm not sure she ever really articulated it. Perhaps she did, but I don't know. But I would say it's probably a bit of both. For me, it's painful to watch that stuff. I don't like to see her in that situation. But also reality TV was the thing at the time. You know, it was a new thing. Everybody loved it. Everybody wanted more of it. Perhaps she also felt she, you know, she could sort of have this new wave career and get swept up in something that everybody loved and everything, you know, was popular paved the way for all sorts of other reality shows. And, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I find it, I find it really painful to watch. Yeah. Now there are several really important men in Anna Nicole Smith's life. And and one of them is Howard K. Stern. And it seems like it depends on who you ask, um, what the nature of their relationship was, you know, whether or not, you know, he's sort of a puppet master or whether or not he's a very close companion or whether or not he's a very trusted friend. And I'm curious to know, you know, what was the thread that you heard the most often? You know, what, I'm not going to ask you what you definitely believe because you can't know, obviously. But, you know, what was the thread that you kind of got the most from when you talked to people about Howard K. Stern? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I probably had my own sort of preconceived ideas about it. But I think the more we talked to people, there was a sense that he was a really important figure in her life, a sort of protector. You know, clearly he wasn't the father of of, of her, ba- her baby girl. But, you know, she went to the Bahamas with him. There's actually a commitment ceremony, which we don't show in the film, which they had to sort of, you know... And, and uh, you know, his, his name was going to be on the baby's birth certificate. So I think that just shows how important he was to her. At the same time, you know, he was a businessman and he was running those deals between the media and, you know, and Anna Nicole. He was sort of representing her. But I don't think he was controlling her. And I think that's the popular mythology. I genuinely don't believe that. Other people may say, oh, you're wrong. You just don't. I really just, from the people that I've spoken to, I think she was, you know, like all relationships, it's complicated. I think she needed him. She, he wasn't controlling her. She was very much, you know, as her bodyguard Mo said, she was very much in control of who was around her and what they were doing and the roles that they played in her life. And I think the very fact that he was there from that period of time, right through to the end, you know, tells you something about her wanting him to be there. Because if, if she hadn't wanted him to be there, you know, and she was not dragged out of her mind the whole time. You know, she was very compassmentous and she knew what she was doing. Obviously, by the end, things were different. But no, I, I believe it's a genuine, I don't know what you would call it. And like you say, love comes in all forms. But I think it's a genuine companionship. A relationship of trust, certainly. She certainly trusted him. Um, yeah, yeah, I totally. Mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. that that became very clear. I mean, you know, another important figure, obviously, is Larry Burkhead. And she gives birth to Danny Lynn. He claims paternity. It turns out he's right. Is it clear really why she completely refuses to acknowledge that he's the father of her baby? Is that, has that ever been really clear? Well, I mean, Larry has, himself has talked about them having big arguments mm. and then her going off to the Bahamas and, you know, what we understand, you know, one of the reasons for that, um, as Mitchell Olsen says, is because there's a particular law in the Bahamas where the, the man or the person on the birth certificate is deemed to be mm. the father of that baby. So to me, that that means that that makes it quite clear that that's what she wanted. Right. We don't know really the ins and outs of that relationship and probably different people have different perspectives, but she clearly wanted to get away. Mm. I think that's what we know. 
I was really blown away by the access to so many people you had in this documentary. By the way, you mentioned the bodyguard. I loved him. He was incredible. <laughs> really, yeah. so many incredible voices here. Um, you talked earlier about Dr. Sandeep Kapoor. I was very surprised to see that you had an interview with him in the documentary. He was the pain management physician who prescribed her methadone even while she was pregnant, talked about her issue in the Bahamas with, you know, being able to uh, receive methadone. I was really not interested in, in a celebrity practice. I mean, I, you know, most of my patients were older. The doctor before me, he said, have you heard of Anna Nicole Smith? I see her for chronic pain. She's very uh, manipulative and she's and she can charm you and try, just don't get caught in that. Why do you think he agreed to talk with you? I mean, pain management physicians, generally speaking, have not been getting great PR in the last few years. But in particular, he's been really a lightning rod figure in this story. Was he just really anxious to get his part of the story out there? Yeah, I think he I think he was. Um, obviously, if you, you know, anybody who's read around this will know that he was uh, put through the ringer. He definitely was one of the people accused of supplying drugs to an addict. And I think that's one thing he really wanted us to understand. I think he also really wanted us to understand that behind Anna's kind of cheerful, happy-go-lucky, beautiful, blonde, bombshell image, you know, this was a woman who was struggling a lot. She was in a lot of physical pain. She was also, as we now understand, in a lot of emotional pain. And as, as an aside, you know, Sandeep Kapoor in his practice today, he's trying to really pull together the emotional things that feed into physical pain. That's one of his big things. So I think the reason he wanted to speak now, I mean, we, again, had to really work to gain his trust. He didn't just agree overnight. It was a long process. Um, I think he just felt we were doing something more sensitive. And, you know, hopefully we did. And and I, I just think it was really important for him to set the record straight when she found out she was pregnant, she unilaterally went off the methadone. Mm. And he said, you, you can't do that. Right. You're going to put the baby in danger. And he explains that in the film, which is why he made sure that she got the medication in the Bahamas, where it was very difficult to get. Right. Which again, people probably, you know, would think, oh my God, you know, it's a doctor giving methadone to a pregnant woman. This is just terrible. It was actually, that was important as part of her treatment and going off it could have been disastrous for the baby. That's right. That's right. So he was being responsible, in fact. Perhaps the most important person in Anna Nicole Smith's life was her son, Daniel. He was mm -hmm. her rock. Obviously, he suffered with depression um, near the end of his life. And then a combination of medications caused him to die of an accidental overdose at his mother's bedside. Incredibly tragic. Everyone describes him as this incredibly normal kid. Obviously, you, he died and, you know, we can't really know him. But what kind of image do you have of him after talking with people about him making this film? Yeah, no, I I, oh, I just, I mean, I've got two sons. I just feel for that story so much. I feel for her. I, I really feel for him. I think, you know, just from everything I know, and you look at pictures of him actually during those years, he didn't want to be in the public eye. He was a, he was a straight A student, apparently. He was very into games. You know, he he wasn't uh, an extrovert. And I think it probably was quite difficult for him as he was in his teenage years around the time of the reality show. Um, but, you know, as Nathan, her personal assistant says in the film, he was just a lovely kid. He was kind of like the opposite of the sort of nepotistic sort of Hollywood kid scenario. Um, a sweet boy and clearly started to lose his bearings a little bit. I think when she went off to the Bahamas, 
you know, he was struggling, as Sandeep Kapoor says, um, he was suffering from depression. And it's a tragedy. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just a tragedy. And I do feel that Daniel was everything to her. And she really wanted that little girl as well. But, you know, he was there. And I mean, my personal view is that, that she couldn't, she couldn't come back from Daniel's death. Mm. Every single conversation was what she did wrong, blamed herself the whole time. She said, I just want to die. I, I don't deserve to be here. It should have been me. It should have never been him. It should have been me. You know, if people, if people die from a broken heart, you know, I, I would say she died from a broken heart because she was just, she couldn't live. And even with her tiny baby, she couldn't carry on living after Daniel died. So Ursula, I have to ask, do you hope that your documentary is going to change the way that people think about and remember and look at the legacy of Anna Nicole Smith? Yes, absolutely. I really, really hope they do. Um, you know, I think she's the woman who's been scrutinized, criticized, uh, idolized, and none of those things really tell us who she really was. And I think I really want people to come away feeling for her, feeling for the life that she enjoyed and loved, but also suffered with, you know, and the light and shade as well. I mean, I think as Missy says, she was a kind person. She had a big heart. She loved her life. She was, you know, she enjoyed, she embraced life as much as she suffered from the life, the path that perhaps she chose to go on and then kind of got swept up. And so I, I hope they have more empathy. I hope they're interested. I think we're in a time when, you know, post Me Too, we're, we're, we're now able to look at these stories with perhaps a different lens than we would have done five, 10 years ago. And just look at people with more humanity, you know? I mean, she's a living, breathing person. It's so easy to criticize people in the public eye, but she, you know, I just wish I'd known her because I just think she would have been such fun and such a great friend. Um, and, you know, hopefully people will feel close to her by the time they get to the end of the film. Well, the subtitle of your documentary is You Don't Know Me, but after watching it, I, I really do feel like I know Anna Nicole Smith a lot better than I did before. Ursula, thank you so much for coming on. You can't make this up to talk to me about it. It was really, really wonderful to watch. Thank you so much, and I hope you all enjoy it. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Ursula McFarlane. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 